Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So we're in the midst of our sermon series, and it's about the life of Joseph, this vice-regent in Egypt, but we can't really talk about the life of Joseph without getting into the details of Jacob, his father, a very complex person. And in Genesis 48, we see uh, Grandpa Jacob, also known as Israel, Grandpa Jacob very near his death. Uh, He was caravanning with his uh, children uh, into Egypt to escape a famine, discovered that his Uh, prized child Joseph was not only alive, but was doing quite well for himself. And uh, he discovers, much to his surprise, that he also has grandchildren, which was very moving to him. And he wanted to make sure that he blessed them before he died. And this is the scene. And I think uh, blessing is a really important uh, term in Holy Scripture, but it's a word that is used so frequently in Scripture and also so frequently in common discourse that we've lost some of the meaning of it, or the profundity of it. It has sort of a, a cheap feel to it. It's, it becomes a bit of uh, empty religious terminology, at least for many people, uh, thrown around too casually. Uh, and, uh, and you've heard it. I mean, you've heard it in a Taco Bell. I've heard it in a Taco Bell. I mean, who hasn't been to a Taco Bell recently? Uh, in which you're sitting there, and you just start scarfing down your food, but you notice there's a very sweet Roman Catholic family uh, next to you, and they decided to pray before they ate. And they say something like, well, dear Lord, bless this food to our bodies. And you're thinking, yeah, right. Uh, in the midst of a Taco Bell, that prayer most certainly will not be answered in any substantial way. Uh, um, sometimes uh, the word blessing is uh, used as atonement for gossip, especially south of the Mason-Dixon. Um, and of course, we have our problems too, you know. But, but down there <laughs> with those people, um, you know, they, they say very grievous things, usually about a relative that they find displeasing. And then afterward, they say, and you know the phrase, right, bless her heart, which, which, which is their way of saying, I feel a little bit guilty about uh, how I just uh, verbally devastated this person that I love. Um, and, uh, and sometimes you see the word you in sort of tacky Christian decor. My great-grandfather, who was a very sweet and somewhat pious man, uh, had a print uh, above the uh, dining room table, and on it was this, uh, looks like a very old, defeated farmer, wrinkled face, gray beard, praying. Uh, uh, right in front of him was a, like, it looks like a loaf of stale, crusty bread with some water, and, uh, and it says under, uh, under uh, it says underneath the picture, bless this house. I guess the idea is that blessing looks something like like solitary dining uh, in a home and you're eating nothing but prisoner food. But, uh, uh, but I don't know what that word means to you, or maybe it means nothing to you, um, but I would like to discuss with you tonight the, um, the biblical meaning of blessing, and hopefully we will be deeply helped when we understand how profound and beautiful and life-altering this concept is. So I want to do a little bit of a word study on blessing, and then I want to talk about the unstoppable blessing as well as the unexpected blessing, which are very uh, core. Those ideas are very core to this passage. So first, we'll start with the meaning of blessing, get into this little word study. Now, let me define my term, and then I'll give you reasons that I've defined 
defined it thusly. Uh, I think that blessing in the Bible means something like, something like to localize the benefits of heaven right here and now. To localize the benefits of heaven. So when you think of heaven or the, the realm of God's uncontested rule and authority, uh, you might think of tranquility because there is no warfare or health because there is no disease, or life because there is no death, or reconciliation with people, or, uh, or, or a lack of hatred within the heart, or being ungoverned by the pathologies of your own personal histories and your own family drama. But you are a person who is free. That's what heaven is. It's when you're free and unchained to be your full self in God, and where the world works as it ought to work. That's heaven, right? And I believe that blessing is when you take some of that substance and you inject it into the present moment. So it's to localize the eternal benefits of heaven right here and right now. And uh, the word blessing first occurs within our origin story. It, it happens, it occurs three times within Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, first, God blesses the animals and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Then he says the, he, to the human beings that he's created in his own image and likeness, I bless you, and now be fruitful and multiply. And then God also blesses the Sabbath day and makes it holy. Right? Now, <clears throat> what's fascinating to me is in the opening uh, chapters of Scripture, the word blessing with all of its richness, that is, I'm giving you something of eternal beauty and quality in the present, in the animal kingdom, and your own uh, love for one another as human beings, and in the Sabbath rest that you'll, uh, that you'll receive. Uh, that is closely paralleled with the word curse that is used three times in chapter three. Uh, the word curse in some ways attacks the very things that God just called blessed, right? So the created uh, order and the, the earth is cursed and human beings are cursed and the serpent is cursed and God's, uh, God's um, curse or his um, anti-creative word comes to live within creation. Now, it doesn't destroy creation, but it runs concurrently with creation. And so within scripture, after the fall, you have two streams running concurrently. You have blessing and cursing, and they run right through the entirety of the Bible. They crisscross at the cross of Christ, and then the one finally and overwhelmingly overcomes the other in the book of Revelation. But all of scripture is a, a dark and sordid and glittering and beautiful tale of the interplay between blessing and cursing. Uh, and uh, that blessing language that begins in Genesis, again, is not canceled by the fall because it returns later. In Genesis 9, after the flood devastates that part of the world and there is great, uh, there is great um, renewal that occurs, uh, some, somewhat unexpected renewal. After the flood is over, Noah and his sons are given a word from God and the word is, I will bless you. Right? So God is now blessing the new creation after it was devastated by anti-creation. And he's blessing this uh, group of people saying, now be fruitful and multiply. Go back to the impulse of the beginning and see if we can do this thing over again. And then the word blessing comes back in Genesis 12 when God selects one man, a pagan moon worshiper from Iraq known as Abraham, and says, I will bless you and create out of you a great multitude and make your name great and you will be a blessing. So I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. Uh, the idea is now that when God selects a human being uh, to bring about the renewal of the world, uh, he blesses him first in order to achieve that uh, great 
renewal. And so in Abraham, we see a little bit of that localization of the benefits of heaven, showing deference and preference and love to this uh, man in order that he might be a great blessing. And then the word blessing is used in public worship. You may know that the priests are uh, ordered in number six during the assembly of the faithful to pronounce a blessing. They're to lift their hands and pronounce a blessing over God's people. And we use these words here at Grace during Lent and Advent, and you know the words, or at least many of you will. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. It's known as the Aaronic blessing because it goes back to Aaron, commissioned to Aaron. Well, this pattern of blessing in which one party prays for another or God speaks directly that the benefits of heaven would localize in the present was started to be used in families, especially from father to son. Uh, and, it, and it was a way of showing preference for one's family and very often for one's firstborn son. Now, I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, very often, a blessing in a family wasn't just about a mode of relating. I'm going to show you sort of relational preference, and you'll feel psychologically better than your, <laughs> than your diminished siblings, right? It wasn't just psychological. It was financial. The person who had the blessing of the father got the lion's share of the estate when the father died. Now, we might not like that and say how terrible it is that you would show deference to the firstborn, unless you're a firstborn like me, and that sounds pretty good. Um, but, uh, but the reality is that it, it, it had great economic utility, because what happens is when the great patriarch dies and the blessing falls upon the firstborn, it is now up to the firstborn to take care of all the rest of the family in the stead of the great uh, father who passed away. So like, there, was, there was some reason and thought behind this just beyond sort of a simple explanation of favoritism. Well, um, this pattern of fathers giving a blessing to their eldest child was uh, passed on generation after generation in the scripture. And uh, so blessing, the whole concept of blessing, is simply an utterance, an utterance of uh, heavenly intention uh, in the midst of a world that is cursed with decay. And the person pronounces the, who pronounces the blessing is essentially saying, within the uh, empire of corrosion, you will be the exception. You will be the exception. You will not be as devastated as you could be. Uh, because I mark you with heaven's greatest purposes and designs. You will be the exception. Uh, and so that's what Jacob wants to do. Jacob sees his grandchildren and wants them to experience the localized benefits of heaven. And so this is verse 1. I invite you to take up your bulletin, open it up to the uh, passage, and uh, read it with me. This is verse 1 of chapter 38, 48, rather. Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." 
Now, I want you to notice that he uh, recounts that he was the beneficiary of a divine revelation, that God came to him when he was a younger man and promised blessing to Jacob. Now, that was quite something, and because you would expect Jacob would be the last person to be blessed by God, because Jacob knew a lot about cursing uh, or about living under a curse, and he knew it from his earliest days because he was a uh, smarmy, plotting, brooding, uh, vengeful in some ways, horrible human being, horrible human being. Uh, and uh, and he, um, he describes, by the way, when he is interacting with Pharaoh at the very end of his life, so remember the prince of the world, right? the, you know, the monarch of the greatest empire, he tells Pharaoh in the last days of his life, few and evil have been the days of my life. So it's not me saying it, it's him. Uh, he owns publicly and before a very influential human being that was believed to be a divinity, that he was an evil man, and he lived a shorter life because of it. Uh, and uh, and w that evil was, was made evident in him very early on when he grew bitter that he was not the favored child. His twin brother Esau, who was born you know, 30 seconds prior, uh, had the rights of the blessing, but he saw that Esau was starving, or Esau conceptualized that he was starving, he probably wasn't, gave him soup and said, you know, how about I, I take your blessing, you take the soup, and Esau was dumb, and he said, okay, and then to fool the father, he dresses up like Esau, right, and his dad is blind by that point, and he goes in, and uh, his father um, feels him and thinks that he's Esau and pronounces a blessing over him, and so he gets the lion's share of the estate, he gets the favor of the family, he gets the paternal blessing. He was a schemer from early on. And that didn't entirely go away. That, that impulse stayed with him uh, and, uh, and was never entirely thwarted until the very end. Well, uh, he knew a lot about the curse, um, but he was a man in whom, in whom the localized benefits of heaven began to be evident because toward the end of his life, he admitted that he was an evil man. And he also desired to see that evil die within himself so that he could become a vehicle of blessing rather than cursing to his children and grandchildren. And so here he is at the end of his days trying to tie up the loose ends. And let's just stop for a minute and think about how admirable that is. So with all the people that you hate, and of course you don't hate anybody, but let's say that you did, um, right? <laughs> let's say there's a few people you want strung up. Um, but uh, wouldn't it be great if, if uh, you could begin to pray for those people? However they conclude their time on this planet, I pray that they would tie up the loose ends, and I pray that they would die without regret, and they would die a healed person, right? And what if you thought that about yourself, you know, that you've burned some bridges, truth be told, and you've said some things that have uh, set people on the wrong course uh, or uh, broken some hearts, and what if uh, tonight you could start mending that? I mean, you really could, you know. Like, it really could happen. And I want you to just see the beauty in uh, Jacob's spirit-driven impulse uh, to really get some things right before he meets his maker. And that's what he does. Uh, and so in spite of his past, in spite of his dishonesty, um, Jacob uh, wishes to uh, offer the blessing with which he was blessed by God to his grandchildren. And he wants to die without being defined by the curse. And he does, by the way. Uh, so uh, that's something about the meaning of blessing. Now let's talk about an unstoppable blessing. This is verse 15, so let's shift down there. This is the blessing that Jacob pronounces over his two grandsons. 
Verse 15, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, what is he passing on to his grandsons? What's interesting is he's not completely creating a new type of blessing or new promises that, through new revelation. Instead, he's relying upon the revelation that was given to great-granddaddy Abraham and then given to Isaac and then given to him, which had to do with being a multitude and being, um, uh, being a people situated in a place, that they would have a homeland. And so he is saying to these grandchildren uh, that you, you are going to be the beneficiaries of this great vow from God, that this blessing will not be stoppable. Now, I think that that is a remarkable thing, especially given what Dr. Shepson talked about last Sunday, because these boys and all of Joseph's family are growing up in the wrong context. They're in the wrong place. Remember, they're in Egypt, and Egypt is not a pleasant word within uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Egypt is always the, the rough earthen equivalent of hell. It's where people rebel against God, enslave nations, and defy Yahweh, right? And yet, here are these boys growing up in this wrong context with wrong culture, with wrong religion, with a wrong language. And through Jacob's bold blessing of these boys, he's evidencing a God who travels. Now, uh, within ancient cosmology, it was very common to think that the, the deities that are often represented in stone or iron or uh, you know, little trinkets would essentially hover over countries, over land. And so they didn't really have this notion of omniscience. You know, I wake up in heaven and you're there. I put my, lay my bed in hell and you're there. I mean, that really was a foreign concept to most ancient people. Um, but in Israelite theology, Yahweh couldn't be contained and was everywhere and uh, could follow you anywhere. And so he's hounded his people down in Egypt. He says to them, essentially, I go where you go. And so as Jacob blesses his Egyptian yet Jewish grandchildren, we see a picture of unstoppable blessing. We see a picture of a resilient God, of a God who takes this fratricidal, dysfunctional, corroded, horrific family and says, essentially, in this blessing, what's being communicated, the meta message is something like this. I don't care where you live, and I don't care what you've done. Uh, and I don't care what circuitous routes you've taken or what faulty wisdom you have relied upon, and I don't care about what blood plots you've plotted. I am entirely committed to you forever. I vowed it, and because I vowed it, it'll be true. I'm committed to you and committed to you forever. So it's fascinating, right? So you have this Jewish family that caravans into hell, right? They, they now belong to the archetypal tyranny of Egypt, and as they are present there, the blessing follows them there, and the word of the Lord is there to remind them that they are still attached to Abraham, that nothing has changed regarding the promise. Nothing has changed. All the context can change. The people can change. The language can change. The politics can change. The promise never, ever changes. The blessing is unstoppable. And I think that's worth paying attention to just for a moment, that God's blessing is not like a Ford Focus. 
Uh, it never breaks down. Uh, I owned a Ford Focus the first year they were out, and uh, well, I don't have it anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but instead of a Ford Focus, God's vowel is something like gravity or the tides or E equals MC square, only much stronger and much more resilient. And I know that's hard for us to believe in, right, that God will actually keep his pledge to fully redeem and uh, um, to deal with you lovingly regardless of the flotsam and jetsam of your life. It's very hard to believe because we live in a land of broken and shattered promises. We live in a land of broken, I remember Annie Lennox of walking on broken glass. Well, that's what we do every day. We walk on broken glass because our worlds have fallen apart. And people that make vows to you lie. Not all the time, but frequently enough to make you defensive, uh, right? It was uh, very tragic. I uh, heard from a former a student of Grove City College who got married, and then uh, she was just happy as a lark, and everything was going along swimmingly. And then after a year, the husband went on a business trip, which was not a business trip, and uh, sent his wedding ring back to her in the mail in one of those uh, you know, insured envelopes just to make it official, and so that she was certain to receive it. And... Uh, she, he had discovered uh, somebody on a dating app and had hooked up with her and left his wife devastated and alone. And she said, I don't think I'll recover from this. And here's what's harrowing and sad. She's right. Now, she'll recover somewhat, hopefully, God willing. But that kind of a wound stabs very, very deeply. That kind of broken glass cuts to the core. And that's the land in which we live and move and have our being. Uh, this is a very, very difficult uh, part of fallenness, is that people who um, stir up the uh, courage or the nerve to vow certain things to you, I'll never betray you. I'll never repeat this conversation to anybody else as long as I live. Right? I'll always be there for you, no matter how hard it gets. Uh, I'll stay married come hell or high water. And yet that doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time, and we either grow uh, into um, a, a despairing person or a person who's terribly defensive because we just don't want to get hurt again. We don't want to be cut up again. But what is beautiful about the biblical vision is a God who is not capricious, who is not moody, who is not like us, to be fair, and who instead does the one thing that is so difficult for us to do. He doesn't lie, and he keeps his vows, and he says... I'm married to you, you're married to me, and you can run around and do whatever you're going to do, but I'm not going to drop you, ever. I'm entirely committed. And we see that commitment in this unstoppable blessing that is offered to these two young boys. So that's something about the meaning of blessing and the unstoppable blessing, and now the unexpected blessing. So as Jacob is dying, he becomes nearly blind. Note, just like his father, becomes nearly blind toward the end. But here he is offering this blessing, and it has unexpected qualities. This is verse 5, just, uh, if you would check that out, verse 5. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now think about that just for a minute. He is saying, the kids that you have, that is, my grandchildren, I'm going to consider them to be children of mine, just like uh, my, uh, my own sons. They're on the same plane, as it were. And then verse 6, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. So he's making a differentiation between these two boys and the rest of uh, Joseph's children. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. 
and Israel, this is verse 14 now, skip ahead there, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So notice two unusual things about this blessing, two unexpected elements. First, Jacob blesses his grandchildren before his own sons, and that's weird. Now, he blesses his sons later, and we'll get into that next week. But he blesses his grandchildren first. Second, he blesses Ephraim, the secondborn, before Manasseh, the firstborn. Uh, Note, he does bless both of the boys. They both get something. But one person gets a BMW and the other gets a Taurus, right? It's not fair, uh, right? But, But what's fascinating is that Joseph goes in with a certain expectation. I'm going to put one of my sons, that is the eldest, in front of my father's right hand because biblically speaking, and it it was just true in the ancient world, that the right hand represented uh, greatness and the left hand represented something lesser. And so he is deliberately putting the boys in a space. Now the blind dad somehow knows, maybe through revelation, that you know, this is being concocted by the son, or this is at least the procedure that the son is employing, and crosses his wrists. And, and you notice that Joseph is not happy about this and tries to grab his dad's wrists and fix it. And he said, and essentially saying, you know, like, beg off. I know what I'm, I'm not an idiot. Like, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I know, I know. Um, and he prays for the boys in this way, um, that essentially uh, Ephraim, the second born, receives the lion's share of the blessing. In other words, the tradition that was in place and respected, widely respected, almost cross-culturally respected, was overturned. The protocol was altered. And by the way, Jacob's blessing does affect Old Testament history. Ephraim and his particular tribe, they evolve and they eventually gain a great and significant role within the broader nation. You may know that after Solomon dies, uh, there is a functional cold war within the country and they split apart. 10 tribes are toward the north. Two tribes are to the south. The two tribes in the south are called Judah. The 10 tribes in the north are called Israel, right at that point. And what's fascinating is that Ephraim's tribe was so influential that very often when the prophets are speaking about the 10 tribes in the north, they summarize all 10 tribes with one word, Ephraim. Like, that's Ephraim. Well, not really. There are 10 tribes up there, but Ephraim is so influential that they just label the whole thing with his name. Manasseh, on the other hand, was situated strangely, kind of between north and south, and never gained the same kind of prominence that Ephraim had. Now... My question, why is this blessing pronounced in this way? Why is this blessing pronounced upon, at least culturally speaking, the wrong person, second born, second in line? What does this mean? I don't know entirely, but I think that this goes to the the heart of, maybe that's not the right word, but the, the subtext or the underground currents of scripture And I think it means something like this. When the tradition is subverted, it is a signal that God is at work and God is doing something uncanny and special. So you have this paradigm, and that paradigm is occasionally overthrown, and it's usually God who's overthrowing it. For example, Cain is the firstborn, and yet Abel is the one who offers a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. 
Uh, Ishmael is the firstborn, and yet God prefers Isaac, the natural child of Abraham and Sarah. David should have been the firstborn uh, in terms of his, his prominence and his acceptance into the monarchy, but he's not. He's the youngest, and he's doing dirty shepherd's work in the fields while the other more handsome lads are battling about. And yet, they're not chosen, but David is. Um, this pattern of choosing the unlikely vessel, selecting the one that nobody else would select, was deep in the heart of Jesus of Nazareth. He really was captured by this impulse. And that's why he begins the Sermon on the Mount with a weird series of blessings that we call the Beatitudes. He starts declaring blessings on people that are completely unlikely, that are all second born, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourners, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the persecuted. No one in that ancient world would say, you know who's blessed? All the people who are scraping life together. Those are the people that are blessed. But what Jesus is doing is saying, no, heaven is going to be evidenced and localized for those people. My eyes are on those people, the ones who were forgotten, the ones who never made it, the ones who didn't get published, or if they did get published, didn't sell enough books, uh, the people who didn't like themselves, the people who hated how they looked, the people who were forgotten by society, who were crushed by dirty politics. I love those people. Blessing resides with those people. Many of you have seen the film Amadeus. I think Tom Hulse was in it and F. Murray Abraham. And it was about Mozart and, and his competitor Salieri. They weren't really competitors in real life, not that I know of at least. And it was largely fictional, but it was all about Salieri's plot to kill Mozart because he was jealous and he hated, he was very angry with God that God would bless Mozart who was, you know, a twit with all these skills while he suffered in silence, you know, as a mediocre composer. Well, at the end of the film, after he's done confessing to this poor beleaguered Catholic priest, um, he says, don't worry, Father. You know, I have become the patron saint of mediocrity. I love that. And he goes around saying to all these people in an, in an insane asylum, like, I bless you. I bless you as the patron saint of mediocrity. But I love that language, the patron saint of mediocrity. I just hope to aspire to that someday. You know, mediocrity. Wouldn't that be great? Um, I don't need excellence. It's too hard. But mediocrity. But what's, what I'm, why I'm saying that is because it seems that at least within the cultural framework of the day, the blessing landed on the wrong person, on the unexpected person, on the lesser person. But that seems to be a signal that God is sending and a signal that is more fully fleshed out in Jesus of Nazareth, who was like a heat-seeking missile to pain. He always was drawn to people who were destroyed and said, you're the one who will be blessed. And so if you're ever feeling like that, and I often do, like what, what life passes me by and I, you know, I miss my opportunities and I wish I had lived differently or done dif differently or whatever. Uh, that doesn't deter the blessing of God. It seems to attract it. So I think that's what grace is, you know, like shock, surprise, that the unexpected blessing will come to you. Yeah. You know, the general pattern of creation is you reap what you sow, right? It's what scripture teaches. It's sort of like low-grade karma. You reap what you sow. Like if you're an idiot all your life, like, bad things will probably happen to you. It's like what the book of Proverbs is based on. You know, If you live without virtue, it's not going to go well for you because you're living against the grain of creation. right? Uh, 
But what grace says is um, sometimes you don't reap what you sow. Sometimes you're just given things that you've never, ever sown. I just regard you as special. I regard you as treasure. I regard you as loved. And that's just how I regard you. And that's God's redemptive blessing made known to us at the cross of Christ. So something about the meaning of blessing, the unstoppable blessing and the unexpected blessing. And I'm going to close now. Uh, I want to speak about blessing children. And I want to speak about blessing everybody. So one way we bless children, at least within this tradition, is that we baptize children. Now, scripture always and universally includes children in the household of God. It's a very daring thing to do because in the ancient world, not all cultures respected children as full humans. But Jewish people did, and Christians did. And so Jesus includes them. He blesses children and is scandalized by people who don't. Paul includes children in the household of faith and, in fact, gives them instructions on how to function within that household. And Peter, in his famous Pentecost sermon, preaches that the promise of the gospel is for us and for our children. And it was beautiful today when Hazel was baptized. She was totally freaking out, by the way, um, uh, when she got the water on her head. But she, in that moment of being baptized, painted for all of us a portrait in watercolors that Christ redeems people who have so little to offer, right? Christ didn't need her to be fully, um, uh, you know, fully devout, fully figured out, uh, fully all in before he would come to her. Instead, grace is aggressive. It pursues us before we even have a dawning realization that we need anything, right? And it, it gave to us a picture of blessing, of God's pre, uh, prevenient blessing, right? And so my question to parents in this room, regardless if your children are young or your children are older, do you bless your children? And I don't mean that in some general, like, existential sense, do you like them or something. I mean something more specific. I don't want to draw the, you know, the lines too tightly, but something specific. Um, blessing, again, is praying for, you're in contact with God, you're praying for the localization of heaven's benefits for your children. How do you do that? How do you articulate that? Not just as a feeling that you hope they'll pick up subconsciously, but how do you articulate that to your kids? Because your kids need to hear it, and here's why. Uh, the world that is, uh, has always existed has um, concurrent streams of blessing and cursing. But the cursing within a fallen world is very loud and cacophonous and at times deafening. And what it seeks to do um, is much like Hamlet's uncle pouring poison into the king's ear. It wishes to pour poison into your children's ears. And it wishes to curse them and hex them and tell them how stupid they are and how limited they are and how they'll never get better and they'll never figure out their lives and they'll just repeat the same dark patterns of their family histories and how, um, and how nobody can love them and nobody can accept them and they're totally defined by everything alienating and terrible and that God is a wish fulfillment and it's cynical and it's spiteful and it's hostile and that's a hex over your children that is constantly being jammed into their ears and what a blessing does is it reverses the curse it says yeah that's the message out there that's what the world has for us but now it is us who shall take issue with the world and we have a different word to speak into you and so let me tell you how I do this you don't have to do it this way but this is how I do it so um, I uh, pray for my kids every night and I take my thumb and I make the sign of the cross on their forehead and I speak the name of the Trinity and then I notice all the things that I love about my kids. It's a long list because they're like in, insanely amazing. And then I just pray those things out loud. So whether it's their artistry, 
uh, whether it's their courage, whether it's their, um, it's a good concert, whether it's something that they're proud of in school, uh, whether it's how funny they are, whether it's their intelligence, whether it's their compassion for other people, but the things that I can see that God is doing. I speak those things out loud and pray that that would increase and nothing would thwart it. That's how I do it. You could do something like that or find your own way, but please don't let your encouragement of your children and your blessing be something that you assume they know. They don't. They don't. And it's not because you're terrible. It's because people don't pick up on hints very well. I always say that in premarital counseling, you know, between like men and women, like don't expect your spouse to like pick up your signals because they're not there to like read clues. Like if you want something, you need to say it, articulate it. The same thing is true with encouragement. People actually don't know you love them automatically because everything in the world is scream not everything. Many things in the world are screaming at them that all of the encouragement and love is a mirage. And the only thing is cynicism, spite and death. And you are standing against that. When you speak blessing like that, you can change a family pattern forever. You can cure things. You can reverse the curse by speaking blessing into your children's lives. Um, And so your mouth can be a portal for heaven. And dark spells can be broken. And new life can be injected and patterns can begin again. So I, I just encourage you to bless your kids. Bless them. Full grace. Give it all away. Now blessing everybody. Today's communion service concludes with a blessing. That's extremely deliberate. Um, It is to show you, that the service's conclusion is to show you that the final and definitive temperament of God toward you is resilient love. That he will orchestrate the power of heaven in such a way that it becomes localized in your life for your eternal benefit. That's why we end with a blessing. It's God's way of saying, I know that the world is insane. It won't always be insane. But the insanity begins to stop now. And you live under my enduring favor. Right? Until the Alps collapse. Right? Until the earth melts away. It'll last beyond that. The favor of heaven. That's why I love Christmas time. Because we get to sing the hymn, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the, 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 it's, the register's too high, so it's hard to sing. But, um, but you remember the, the words, right? He comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found, right? And so we end the service with a blessing to say that no matter what this world can do to you, it will be overthrown by the eternal blessing of Christ who on the cross became a curse for you so that you might become the blessed of God. The unpredictable and unstoppable blessing of God has, in fact, hounded you down. And hands with holes torn in them grasp your scalp, and you hear a voice say, the lion's share is yours. It's yours. It will always be yours. All our shattered and broken promises, all the things that we've experienced in our lives, those cracked things, jagged things piled up higher than a cat could climb, will fade into nothingness, and the restorative blessing of God will flood your life like the waters that cover the sea. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your